Yeah, buddy. We're back NFL playoff style for another episode of uh, the Stem Cell Podcast, episode 10, RPE and Macular Degeneration. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosu Gannett, and you know it, Stem Cell Podcast. What up, Yos? Hey, how's it going? I'm glad that you uh, paid some deference to the NFL there. It's been a great playoffs, and I'm glad my team is in the t- last fall, final four. Yep. Yeah, well, I did that for you. Yeah, thank I know you. your team is in it and mine's not, so yeah. I give you the props. So uh, congrats it, you know, so it feel, far. It but feels, you're going to have a tough game coming up. It feels good after you guys stole two of those uh, Super Bowl rings off of Brady's fingers. <laughs> yeah, for, for disclosure, Yosef uh, is a Patriots fan. I'm a Giants fan. So I don't have my Manning in the game, but I have his brother Manning versus your Brady. So I'm going to be rooting for the brother Manning to take down the Tom Brady uh, next week. Do you know if it's Saturday or Sunday? Do you know the game? It doesn't matter because we're a stem cell <laughs> podcast. So <laughs> let's uh, let's so, get yeah, to so it, man. Let's, Explain let's that exa- title right there. Explain that title. So we have RPE and macular degeneration. So we've talked about, um, you know, a, a lot of people, Yosef, we ask the question to people, where do you see the closest therapy, right? And a lot of people say macular degeneration and RPE. So macular degeneration is the leading cause of blindness. Uh, I think one in five people over the age of 65 or 70 get it. Um, 10 million people. And RPE is the cell type behind the eye, behind the retina. That's, that kind of goes bad. And so we are uh, really lucky today to have Dr. Sally Temple as our guest. Dr. Sally Temple is really in the true sense of the word pioneer in the stem cell field. She pretty much discovered neural stem cells back in uh, 19, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, and her career has gone on just to do a bunch of really awesome things. And her focus, one of her main focuses now is uh, taking this RPE cell and turning it uh, into a therapeutic for macular degeneration. They're going to be taking it to a clinical trial in about uh, hopefully two to three years. So she's going to give us a little bit of history and uh, let us know where it's going. So this is going to be a great a great show with some really good information. Which do you think is worse, uh, having your sight and losing it or never having it from the beginning? Never uh, having your sight and losing it. Yeah. You think that's worse? I think because because I think because I you know you had it and you lose it. I think I feel like if I never had it, I would always think about what it would be. But at least I wouldn't. It, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, but I, I guess it depends on how long you've had it. If you had ninety years, you had a good run, right? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but we but should I mean, also. If I had it for like you know thirteen years old, fourteen, right at the time I hit puberty, and I'm just yeah. starting to get interested in things, and then I lose it. That's a disaster. Well, at least you would have seen a rainbow. Hopefully. I hope so. I like rainbows. Yeah. How do you describe a rainbow oh, to a blind person? It's the most beautiful thing you'll ever see, which is an awful thing to tell a blind <laughs> I know, person. That is horrible. That's, <laughs> That's so bad. You know, already oh you failed. No, but you know, we, and, and I, I, we're talking about this, that like with blindness, um, it's such like a visceral, it's like a visceral fear, you know, like you hear that and everybody's scared of being blind. Like, you know, it's a well, real well, vision's, you know, vision's very you know, important to us. I mean, we say, when we say, I understand some, we say, I see, you know, it's like, it's, it's part of understanding almost, you know, imagine not seeing, <laughs> you here's, know, here's the question. If you had a choice to lose vision or hearing, which do you want to lose? Oh, definitely hearing first, even though I love music, I, I, I just need my visuals, uh, in terms of, the majority of the input that I take in is from visual 
Although I listen to a ton of podcasts, so maybe I should I stick we, with the we, hearing. We would, we would be able to do this podcast, but we just wouldn't be able to hear it. Yeah, that's unfortunate. That, w- that would be unfortunate. Anyway, so I think uh, what we'll do is uh, Yost is going to do his uh, roundup, and then we're going to get right into the interview because I think we're going to go over a lot of, of material. Um, so uh, quickly, uh, everybody out there listening, uh, we really want – some feedback and some input. So get us on Facebook, uh, Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, and email Stem Cell Podcast at gmail.com. Um, I think what we could do, Yost, too, is you know if we get a bunch of people, like you know we'll 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 get some listeners on the show uh, possibly to interview and just let us know what you're hearing. So just get some feedback. We want to hear from you guys. We do this for you, so please just let us know what you're thinking and and share, spread the word, and go on iTunes, subscribe, right, whatever you need to do. Just uh, just get a, get us back some feedback. We really we really like it and we really look forward to it. Yeah, I feel like we've sort of slacked on our online presence. Uh, we've got some great feedback in the first five, six episodes, and then it tapered off. So uh, if you're out there, we're we're listening. So, but yeah, we're uh, here, and we've been very grateful for what we've gotten in terms of feedback on iTunes, which is the most important. So leave a leave a you know comment there, and we'll keep doing this. So uh, we should actually, before I get into the roundup, we should mention that Sally is sort of like your research mom in a way. Like she, she she is my research mother, uh, which I could relate to because Flora Vaccarino for me at the Yale child center study center brought me into, you know, neuroscience and she's kind of my research mom, even though I didn't do my PhD with her. It was, you know, I could relate to that. It's like, very comforting to have so that sort I, of men- I, mentorship. I was in Miami and I was trying to figure out what for undergrad and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do and I was looking at PhD programs and I wanted to go and studying the brain and I stumbled across a review written by Sally Temple and I'll never forget it. It was in Nature and it's called uh, Building the Brain of Our Dreams. And I've it was seen probably that one review. Of the, it was probably one of the most amazing things I've ever read. I read that and I went, I called or I emailed that I went to the lab and that's where I went. And uh, she was my PhD advisor, my mentor. And now I'm really lucky to work in the same institute as her. I get to collaborate with her and still get her guidance. She's just uh, a really great person and a great scientist. So um, I think everyone will benefit from just listening. She's got a very soothing tone too, right? You know, it's very, yeah, I've very met her before soft. and uh, she's absolutely brilliant as well. So uh, don't let that soft voice hide the uh, fierce intelligence behind. Certified genius, MacArthur genius. That's so. right. That's right. So uh, let's get into the science roundup. Let's do it. Uh, let's so do it. It's, there's a bunch of cool studies going on. I'll start off right away with a nature cell biology study showing that SOX2, overexpressing SOX2, uh, remember one of those uh, reprogramming factors we keep mentioning here from yep. the, uh, can reprogram residential astrocytes in the mouse brain uh, into proliferative neuroblasts really? in the mouse adult brain. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. They overexpressed SOX2 in vivo, and the astrocytes started like you know becoming proliferative neuroblasts. Which neuroblasts generate new neurons. Anything blast is like proliferative or new and uh when we say neuroblast or you know osteoblast that's like the building of something so in that case osteoblast it's bone here it's neurons so that's cool right yeah that's actually that's really cool do you know the group yost do you have that on hand or no no? i i don't write all those things No, that's fine that's 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 really interesting socks too man it always seems to be a player 
Yeah, I know. It's one of the reprogramming factors, and it's a neural, like, you know, progenitor factor as well. So that's always interested me in terms of transcriptor fact, transcription factorness, you know? Like, there's just that weird property of SOX2 where it's not only, uh, you know, reprogramming or rejuvenative factor, it's also a neurogenic factor. That's cool. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, New England Journal of Medicine study. Uh, sh- uh, this is actually kind of a Debbie Downer, but showing that U.S. global uh, decline in money spent on biomedical research from uh, they took the time period between 2012 and 2007, and it decreased from 55 uh, to 45 percent. Um, the global decline. It, in just money spent on biomedical research. Yeah. That sucks, man. In the same time, China had a 313% increase, which is a lot. But it's all relative, I'm sure. Like, uh, the total number is probably a lot different than the percentage number. But I guess that's quantity and quantity. uh, Yeah, numbers. But, uh... The the Chinese just make moves, huh? Yeah, but we also saw there's like an issue with uh, being able to buy publications, which is... True. Yeah. uh, True. I saw that that was confirmed recently as well. Um, So they got to clean that up. Um, There was a nature... uh, Sorry, a science paper showing that um, you can block marijuana toxicity uh, via this... This drug called pregnenolone. <laughs> pregnenolone, yeah. Pregnenolone? Yeah, yeah. And it works on the CB1 receptor, which is... Cannabinoids. The, yes, yes. The, the endogenous system that's there. It's You know what's crazy is how that wasn't taught in uh, my neuroscience classes because it really wasn't characterized. And now it's a really extensive you know, synaptic pathway, just the expression of CB1s. You know, I wasn't CB1s. taught it either, but there was a researcher in my department when I was doing my PhD, and he studied pain relief, uh, and he was studying cannabinoid-mediated pain relief. And so I did a rotation in his lab, and I learned a lot about cannabinoid signaling and the endogenous cannabinoids. Really interesting. Really, yeah. really cool. Yeah, I, I mean... Speaking of pain, uh, there was actually a nature study that came out this week from the Scripps Institute uh, showing that uh, they basically crystallized a opioid receptor. You know, the Delta opioid, yep. there's like Delta, Mu, and Kappa. Well, uh, Delta, they crystallized it, which was also really hard to do in the past. Uh, but they made like this fusion protein stabilized crystal, and they were able to... Uh, uh, image it down to the 1.8 angstrom, which is like one one trillionth of a meter. And um, so they were basically able to show, like it's been known for a while, that sodium or salt uh, can affect, uh, you know, the binding of this opioid receptor, even since like back in like Snyder's days or whatever, like the old school electrophys people knew this. And it was never really known how until these guys determined the basically that there's an allosteric interaction, which is kind of like, how would you describe it? Just like uh, the cloud of <laughs> a binding um, that basically... It, 
modulates the signaling of opioid receptors. So there's a spot where the salt just sort of gets in there and affects, modulates the signaling of uh, delta opioid receptors. And it's just interesting in terms of pain, uh, these receptors are big, uh, big deal, right? Yeah, that's that's the big one. Yep. Yeah, definitely. so uh, kind of hard to explain, but hopefully that you know, it always amazes me when people talk about angstroms. So like an angstrom for everyone is just like it's a unit of length, like a meter. I think the angstrom's like one ten billionth of a meter. Yeah. <laughs> so like just imagine that. Like how small is that, man? It's yeah, so small. I mean, it's almost infinitesimally small, which is oh, man. hard to even conceive of. But uh neuron paper, you know our Good old neuron. Uh, yeah, showing uh, that line elements, you know, those long interspersed nuclear elements. Um, yep. Those like jumping genes. As jumping they were. genes. I've referred to them as the key maker in the matrix, those like rogue programs or the Merovingian, those uh, of DNA, these jumping, you know, shifty creatures <laughs> in the genome. They apparently are normally abundant in the schizophrenic brain. Really? Yeah. So that was in neuron. Wow, that's uh, cool. Yeah, yeah, recently. So I uh, mean, I, I oh, God, schizophrenia, man. It's 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 crazy. I mean, I I I was reading something recently about just from a schizophrenic patient, like a diary, and it's wild, absolutely wild. Yeah, it's well, a crazy disease. Who that's knows cool. if that's cause or effect? But it's uh, it seems like a new avenue of research at, at the very least. Uh, FACEB, which I'm not sure what that journal stands for. FACEB, you know, F-A-S or FACEB. Yeah, I think it's a nature uh, journal, uh, but I don't know what it is. I think it's, uh, oh wait, um, here, Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology. Oh, nice, nice. You like well, that? Well, FACEB journals study showing that uh, as we age, the thermogenic activity of brown fat is reduced, and this is possibly mediated through the PATH slash PATH receptor signaling pathway, so PAF. If you want to look that up, it's in FACEB. Yes, yes, we got weird gene names in uh, the science world. PNAS, our favorite journal. PNAS. Yes, the PNAS journal study showing uh, that STAT3 pathway is overactive in head and neck cancer, and this is uh, because of phosphatates. Uh, Phosphate, sorry, uh, were not being removed uh, via this uh, phosphatase uh, from the PTPR family. So if you didn't get enough acronyms before, you got another one right there. PTPR. So phosphatases are important. So I think it's the uh, tyrosine kinases that put the phosphate on, which tends to lead to an active signal. And you got the phosphatase that takes the phosphate back off. So yeah, it's sort uh, of like the on-off switch. Of, exactly. Uh, if you don't have a good phosphatase, you're just going to have overactive signaling most of the time, and uh, that would that would make sense in the case of cancer. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, nature medicine study showing that in Inhibition of BMI1, I know you're familiar with that gene, huh? BMI1 can slow down colorectal cancer via stem cell self-renewal. Yeah, I, you know, I read that paper. Uh, very cool. Um, I did my PhD work on BMI, so uh, and it's a self-renewal regulator. Uh, so uh, that's cool, man. Very yeah. cool. Uh, I, I'm glad you uh, are familiar. Um, there was... Another bad news, uh, first fatal case of H5N1 or bird flu in the Americas. It was in Canada. Yeah, it was a 
Chinese woman, I think, came over into Canada. So hopefully that will not spread. Um, J Neuro study showing that uh, nociceptin, which is a opioid neurotransmitter, uh, but it sort of has the opposite effect of opioids, is an anti-stress molecule in the brain, and this is mediated by the NOP receptor. Really? Yes, yes. So it's nociceptin, and that's in J Neuro. Uh, so it's sort of this new anti-stress molecule that I want to highlight. Um, there's a, let's see here, PLOS, what's that stand for? The yeah, Public Pl- Library Plos, of Science. Uh, PLOS stands for the... Public Library um, of Science. I'm pretty oh, yeah, sure. Yep, yeah. yep. Uh, genetics, PLOS genetics study showing that... Uh, it was basically, I don't know if you know this, but like the Y chromosome only has 27 unique genes to it, which kind of really? makes me feel like a troglodyte because there's like thousands <laughs> on, the X, on the X chromosome. But they were, you know, there's this whole like it, uh, question if the Y chromosome will basically devolve out of like become like the pancreas of the genome. You know, uh, did I say the pancreas? The appendix of the genome. Like just have no functioning of go away, and um, this study sort of through this complicated method basically showed that that's not the case. Uh, that it's um, even though like the Y chromosome is uniquely susceptible because it can't swap out. Like women have two X's. That means if one of the X's goes wrong, there's like a backup copy, or they could swap DNA. With the Y chromosome, it's kind of just hanging out there, and it's got like. 17 gene well i said 27 but uh 17 are known and the other ones are like these amplicons that like are repeated units of dna that we really don't know much about uh so <coughs> pardon me um yeah i the the y chromosome isn't going anywhere well that's good that's good <laughs> i hope not yeah on a evolutionary you know, long-term time point. We're talking like 5 million years, so it's not going anywhere soon, just like our sun, hopefully. Um, there was a nature neuroscience study. Uh, from This is my last one. Um, study uh, that basically uh, looked at over 160 people over 24 hours and showed that um, caffeine pills could enhance their uh, memory, essentially. Really? And these were like uh, not real coffee drinkers, but like not unexposed either. So um, interesting study is nature neuroscience. Um, and, wow, that's yeah. cool. I didn't see that. That's awesome. That's yeah, really they, cool. I read it today, so it's just hot off the presses. And, hot uh, off the press, what we do here on the Stem yeah, Cell Podcast. Yeah, we're in the second week. The we're entering the third week of January. It's going to be a little ambiguous and finally uh because i forgot to mention this uh with our 2013 roundup i just want to acknowledge that uh three uh nobel laureates who died um there were francis jacob and frederick sanger do you know that guy got two nobel prizes uh he like he's the sequencing king and uh david hubble uh also died from you know uh i actually i don't remember yep. what Hubble did, but anyhow, I just want to acknowledge those uh, Nobel laureates that we all lost in 2013. Yes, I think I acknowledge Dr. Phil. 
Dr. I mean, Mister Phil. Phil or Phil, Phil from Fresh Prince of Bel Air. That you was mean my Uncle Phil. <laughs> Uncle Phil. Uncle Phil. Yeah, that was great. I'll, so I'll I, never I, think, I think it's well. Yes, I that, think acknowledging the laureates is, is well deserved. Yeah, compared to Uncle Phil, I think they're on par. I, I think so. <laughs> you know, before we go, before we get Sally on here, I was just, you know, I remember you talk about the Y chromosome. There was, you ever hear of the Genghis Khan effect, Yos? No. It was like, you know, everybody know Genghis Khan, the Mongolian War of the 13th century. I guess, like, he was, like, this prolific lover. And so they found, like, geneticists studying the Y chromosome. I, I just found this because um, I, I Googled Y chromosome just because you're saying that. And this thing popped up because it's getting all the, it's getting attached to the press that the paper you were talking about was. Um, and that these geneticists found that studying the Y chromosome found that nearly 8% per, eight of men living in the region of the former Mongol Empire carry Y chromosomes that are nearly identical. Yeah, it's from him. It's He, he changed the bloodline. He's you know, Millions. We're talking millions of people. And he said that, this, that they said that this translates to 0.5% of the male population of the world, or roughly 16 million descendants. That's insane. Well, I know. This is one of the major evolutionary differences between men and women. I mean, think uh, wow. Solomon had 500 wives. How many, you know, Queen Elizabeth max 20 kids, right? I mean, it's a big difference when you when you're the king, I guess you could do what you want. <laughs> wow, man. That's that's he says here that like Khan's empire, uh, let's see, extended across Asia to the ocean, let's see, descendants extended like all the way down hundreds of years. Uh, he said his eldest son had 40 sons, his yeah. eldest son. So, I mean, think about that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. 40 sons. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, Solomon, 500 wives. It's, it's an old concept, I guess. I, it's, it's kind of scary, but yeah. All right, Chris. So why don't you bring in our guest for today? All right. So it is my great pleasure to introduce a true pioneer in the stem cell field uh, for her work and helping to identify for the first time the existence of stem cells in the brain. And so since then, she's gone to publish numerous papers in high-profile journals describing neural stem cells and their potential for therapy. Uh, her work is currently progressing towards a clinical trial uh, for um, macular degeneration, which we're going to talk about a little bit. I know, yes, we've talked about that in previous podcasts. She has been recognized with numerous awards, including uh, Jacob Javits NIH Investigator Award and a MacArthur Genius Award, uh, just to name a few. Now she's currently the director, the scientific director and principal investigator at the Neural Stem Cell Institute. Uh, she is a member of the board of directors for the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Uh, and she sits on the board of uh, some high-profile uh, journals, editorial board, such as Cell, Stem Cell, and Neuron. And I believe she will be a candidate coming up for the vice president of ISSCR. So everyone out there will have to surely give her her vote. Um, and so the Stem Cell Podcast proudly welcomes my colleague, friend, and scientific mom, Dr. Sally Temple. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. All right, so let's let's get right into uh, the science. So why don't you first start in telling everybody your work over your scientific career, you know, what you've done, what your lab has done, and kind of the direction it's going. Uh, so I, I started off very early uh, working on how the nervous system forms. I thought this was the most fascinating question. You have this very, very complicated structure the human brain, 
And the question is, how does that get created? So uh, my early studies were, you know, sort of had this reductionist approach. Let's break it down to individual progenitor cells and see what each progenitor cell can do. Um, I started that work as a PhD student working with Martin Raff and then continued it at the University of Miami and uh, where, where I was a research instructor. And when I started to do this experiment, I found that while most of the progenitor cells in the developing brain gave, you know, small clones, just a few neurons or a few glial cells, there were some cells that had this remarkable property of dividing enormous numbers of times, making lots of neurons and glial cells. And I think this was a really interesting observation that said the cells are not equivalent and that there are some cells that are behaving like stem cells. So that was way, way back in 1988, 89. Um, and really, since then, I've been basically following that same path, um, trying to understand what makes those stem cells self-renew and make all of the different cell types in the CNS, and particularly the cortex. You also talked about that one paper where I still have yet to find somebody publish a paper in Nature with just them on the author line. Yeah, that that was in... That was in what year was that? I mean, Sal, you're deceptively young looking. I eighty eight. That's <laughs> uh, eighty eight. Is um wow. I I, I what, when yeah. was that Nature paper? Yes, that was a Nature paper on CNS. I think I called them blast cells, blast cells. but that within the the paper we talk about stem cells. And yes, I remember because I was pregnant with my daughter oh, okay. while I was doing the experiments and. <laughs> You know, as I was getting larger and larger, I was getting further and further away from the microscope. So it was, <laughs> it was getting harder to do it. But actually, no, it was memorable. Being the first female scientist on the stem cell podcast, maybe you could uh, speak to that uh, as as a mother raising a family. How how's that? How's that incorporate, or how do you bring those two together? So I learned early on that. There's, there's never a right time. You just have to go in and do what you want. And if you want to have a family and have a career, you just got to do it. You know, you can't, you try to plan these things and it, it just doesn't you work keep out. You keep thinking, gotta, you'll just, yeah, yeah. you just got to kind of go you gotta for it. You got to dive in. And you got to find a place that appreciates family. And this is one of the things that we really liked about coming up to Albany is that the institutes here that we've worked for have really respected family and know that if your kids are sick, you go home and it's that type of attitude. You've got to find the right place. And uh, are there any uh, challenges that you faced in the world of science as, as, a, as a woman scientist? Well, you know, like in in any uh, in in many many careers women scientists women have simply a harder a harder job mm. um i think in developmental biology the, there's been a strong tradition of women scientists and for for our field 
we've uh, we've done very very well. But there's many branches of science where you have to still even today forge a path. And one of the things that I would recommend is that women scientists think hard about how they negotiate their positions, especially their first positions, down to the the lab space and the salary, mm. and understand what what the guys are getting and really go for that as well. Yeah. You have to be proactive. I've heard other, I mean, not even in the science world, like, uh, what's her name? Uh, Sandberg's new book, uh, Go All In, where it's like you have to learn to negotiate and your value, and it's not something inherent to a lot of uh, women. But if you have any, uh, I don't know, advice that you can maybe give to any of our female listeners out there, um, please do. I uh, I don't know if you have anything you may want to impart to the audience. Well, I, I you know before you do that, I, it's interesting you said about the field of development. Sorry for like I, I divert from that because my developmental biology teacher in college was a woman. Um, random thought. I just I made me think about that. And you know, I was talking to a couple uh, friends who are female or going on the job market in science, and they've gone on a couple of interviews. And I asked the question, Yosa, I asked them, "Did you notice?" You know, do you notice anything different? And their response was, I don't know. I don't know what to notice. You know, it's, they don't, I'm not being compared to a man when I'm on the interview. I just assume that I'm getting a fair, a fair shot. And the only thing I can do is present my work as I've done, you know, talk about my direction as a scientist and just hope that they see me for what it is. Right. So I guess that's really what, what anyone has to do in that situation. Uh, I think you should do that, but I think women should research into uh, things that they can where information is available, uh, lab lab uh, space, um, startup packages, and salaries, all of these items that if they talk to the men and women in their peer group and try to get them to get that information – they may see discrepancies. If you go on the university professor, I think it's uh, American uh, University professor website. I'm I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly what what it is. But if I've in the past gone there, and it breaks down salaries for men and women mm. in different positions within science, you know, assistant professor, associate professor, right. Uh, in every institution across the country, and invariably, the women are earning less than the men. The last time I looked was probably a couple of years ago. I doubt it's been fixed in two years. Yeah, it was very recent because I remember Sally came in and she, she said it to me, and I couldn't believe that, that there was a, there was a noticeable difference, but it exists. Yeah, you know? I know in general it's 70 cents on the dollar, and uh, there's the Lilly Ledbetter Act, which was – I guess Obama's first piece of legislation they signed in and it's to address this. I mean, uh, that had to do with like a tire company where the woman found out years later that she was earning less and couldn't do anything about it because she didn't even know and the statute of limitations had run out. So, um, I, and as scientists, we'd like to think, oh, we're empirical, this and that, and we do it all on the merits. And we'd like to think that we're not affected, but I guess there still is the old boys club phenomenon, even in 2013, 2014 now. So, and we, no, we have to change it and we have to change it at all levels. We have to make sure that women are getting hhmi positions for example at the at the appropriate rate 
That's the Howard that, Hughes Medical Institute. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or that they are getting uh, the the prizes that are being given out, that they're giving those proportionally. Mm. And it's just important that women are are active at all stages to make sure that these awards and prizes and the correct um, you know, rewards for what we're doing yeah. is being recognized. Nice. So uh, why don't we move on and uh, actually talk about uh, some of the the signs. I, I uh, The topic for this particular podcast is RPE, retinal pigmental epithelium, and uh, maybe you could describe to us uh, some of the uh, stuff that's going on in the field, what you're doing, and uh, what you see in the future. Sure. So uh, if you look into someone's eyes, you'll see that black area in the in the middle when you look through the pupil when you're looking back when you see that black area it's the pigment the pigmented layer at the back of the eye the retinal pigment epithelium is this very very thin sheet of pigmented cells and when light comes into the eye uh, it hits the photoreceptors which respond and then the light is goes into that pigmented layer and it helps absorb it so it doesn't like reflect around in, in the back of the eye. In addition to that role, it has really important roles in supporting the light-sensitive cells in the eye. And in fact, if the retinal pigment epithelium is damaged, then the photoreceptors stop working properly and then you lose vision. So this is a crucial tissue. And unfortunately, um, in the aging population, one of the things that happens is that the very central vision, the, the vision that you use for reading, for recognizing faces, watching TV, for driving, um, in that region, the retinal pigment epithelium is, begins to degenerate with age. Can we can and we talk so, about those two diseases? So there's uh, age related macular degen. We're talking about macular degeneration. First yes. of all, let's back up and the, just say RPE is, the- is is neural tissue. We're talking about uh, neurons, mm-hmm. it, which is always bl- mind blowing to me that when you're looking in somebody's eyes, you're looking into their brain. Literally, it's actually brain tissue um, that you're looking at when you look in someone's eyes. So you're, and so it we're is. talking about uh, brain tissue and uh, two diseases. I guess there's wet and there's dry macular degen. Yeah. Gen. Yes. So the macula is that central region. Uh, it's just another name name for it. And okay. When patients have age-related macular degeneration, and it's just extraordinary, one in five people over age 75, I mean, it's extraordinary how many people are affected, millions, over 10 million people in the U.S. alone. Mm. Um, there's two forms of the disease. So most patients have what's called the dry form, and it's like other neurodegenerative diseases where the cells produce sort of deposits that are abnormal, and they build up under that retinal pigment epithelial layer and kind of push the cells off the basement membrane, they begin to degenerate as a, as a result of that. And then in about 10%, 10 to 15% of people, they progress to this form called the wet form. And in the wet form of AMD, what happens is in that macular region, 
there's blood vessels that are underneath and they're normally, there's normally a barrier between them called Brooks membrane. And what happens in the wet form is that the barrier breaks down and the blood vessels from the back of the eye grow through that macular region. And you can imagine this is like driving a truck through the center of that very, very delicate nervous system tissue and it disrupts all of that central vision very dramatically. And so that's the difference. Can I ask uh, two questions? Uh, do we know the function of the pigment, and um, or and also what are what are are there genetic causes, or is it environmental? What what what's causing, or is this just you're old and they they start to die, uh, depending on how old uh, or your genetic background or exposure to toxins or what what? Uh, I, I guess those are my two questions. So the the pigment is really important and I think it helps with that process I, I talked about before where when the light comes in, it helps absorb it. Mm. Um, you know, it can also help uh, dampen free radicals. It can really be a, an important protectant at the back of the eye. So that's some of the reasons the pigment is there. Mm. Um, and... You're right. There's this is a complex disease, and there's several associated genes that that with AMD. There's also a lot of environmental factors. Uh, so, as far as the genes go, the very first GWAS study, I think, the genome-wide association of that genome-wide association study, mm. um, like almost the first product of the application of the human genome was for identifying some genetic changes associated with age-related macular degeneration. So it's really been pioneering in that, in that regard. And then as far as environmental factors, smoking is, is a bad one. You know, if you smoke, then your incidence of AMD goes up. Oh, okay. Hmm. Now, I think before we go into uh, your work on RPE and, and, and its potential for treatment and clinical trials that are ongoing and stuff that, that might get there. Let's just talk quickly about what's currently available to these patients because, um, as we mentioned, there are two forms. There's this dry form and then the wet form. And I, and I, I just know now from being around this research that the dry form typically doesn't manifest in a in a lot and or vision loss, is that correct? If you have a dry form and, I, and then the doctor looks down your eye and says you have some sort of early form, do they manifest a, a visual deficit? They can, correct? Yes, and it, it's progressive. This is a progressive neurodegenerative disease. So it can start off mild with like a little bit of distortion in the vision, but even with the dry form, if it progresses, you can lose effective central vision. My, I'm very familiar with this because my mom has uh, AMD and she has the wet form in one eye and the dry form in the other. And she basically can't see from either of the eyes yeah, at the moment. So she can't read. It's, it's really devastating. So you and can have both. Sorry, That's you, interesting sorry, that sorry, you can yes. have both in one person, uh, both the wet and dry form in, in, the, in either eye. I didn't know that that was, I thought it was either or. I didn't know that uh, you got both. And and for the dry form, then, it, it, the doctor at that point can't give you a, a prescription for a medicine that would prevent the progression to the wet form, correct? There's really no good current treatment to kind of slow that down or stop it or something like that? 
Yeah, that's that's an issue. So there are good drugs for the wet form, for that small population of people that have that devastating wet form. There are several uh, anti blood vessel growing factors, anti-angiogenic factors that can counteract that. They're on the market. Um, in fact, one of them is being manufactured right here on our location. Uh, on the campus that we're on now, there's manufacturing for one of those drugs that by Re- Regeneron, but other companies uh, like Genentech, they also have um, various anti-angiogenic drugs. But for the wet foam, Right now, patients are basically told to take vitamins, which really have very, very minimal effect, if any effect. So when so there's there's nothing for dry AMD. When these cells die, do people lose the pigment there? I mean, if you looked into their eyes, did they slowly uh, just go away? That the black spot does that is that starting to fade out, or is it still there and just the functionality is? No longer. Um, no, yeah. as as the cells die, you're absolutely right. You can look in and you can see a sort of mottling, a loss or change in the pigment as a result of those cells dying off. Wow. You can tell that we're talking to Yosef, uh, who does research on a cell that also is pigmented. Yeah, also, I mean, uh, and one of the, along those lines, you know, I work on Parkinson's and the substantia nigra and, you know, these melan, uh, melanin producing uh, cells. But it, are they like when, with Parkinson's, when people are uh, diagnosed, it's already, you know, almost half the cells are gone. Is that the same uh, with uh, MacDGen? You know, you're you're right. It can be. It really depends on whether people are going regularly to an ophthalmologist to to you know have that uh, regular checkup. And if they're not, they may not notice. Oh, you know, my vision's a little bit off. It's a little blurry. And then when you go in, it's it's really progressed quite a long way. So it it is similar in that regard. A lot of patients are not diagnosed until quite late. So then there here then we present I guess the need for some sort of therapeutic for this disease it's it's extremely uh, prevalent right I mean a lot of people have it in, the, in that early form which is the most critical of that early time there's really not a lot going on so enter the world of stem cell research and regenerative medicine um you know the RPE and this disease seem like a good target so why don't we get into a little bit about the research that's going on uh, at the at the Neural Stem Cell Institute uh, in your lab, uh, looking at RPE? And I, it's actually now that I now that I heard you talk about your early work, it's kind of cool because, you know, back back in we were talking about in '89 or that time, you had this eureka kind of discovery where you pulled cells out of the brain and saw that there was this one unique population that was growing that turned out to be some sort of stem or precursor cell. And then now, 20 years later, down the down the line, your work you're looking at RPE, and you had some sort of similar discovery. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yes, yeah, so you're you're absolutely right, and it shows that we've been doing the same experiment now for, <laughs> for decades. But it's clearly important experiments, very clearly. You know, you know, it, it's a really powerful technique. This idea of looking at single cells and asking what what they're capable of. And so we took exactly that same methodology, but this time we're looking at the retinal pigment epithelial cells from the human eye, from the adult human 
I. Um, and we can get these from I donations. People very generously donate to eye banks because they know when they do that that the eye can be used to help restore, say, for cornea transplants for other patients. And uh, what we need is the part that actually gets thrown away, the retina, the CNS, the nervous system tissue at the back of the eye. We take that out and we take out the retinal pigment epithelial layer, which is easy to see because it's pigmented. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we dissociate that to single cells and we ask if we plate a single cell in a well and a culture dish, what and give it growth factors, you know, how does it grow, what how many times does it divide? And we found, as you say, a similar thing that most of those cells don't divide very much at all, maybe none or just once or twice. But then there's a subpopulation, less than 10% of the cells that divides like crazy and can fill a whole well and make thousands of beautiful retinal pigment epithelial cells. So that was when we realized that we had a recipe that would allow us to activate this cell and, and see it and use it. So in the adult, uh, in the adult eye, there are still resident neural stem cells that can make RPE. So we don't know exactly if these cells exist in the eye or if we're just activating them in the culture dish. I see. Um, that's still, it's a really interesting question that we're trying to, trying to work on right now. What I can say for sure is that the retinal pigment epithelium has a subpopulation of cells that has this property if you give it the right growth factors in I culture. See. And I, I remember reading or seeing somewhere you'd done some work with some bovine eyes. And is that how you optimize these culture conditions? Yes, they're really helpful uh, to to do that. And, you know, you can get a lot of cells and the material is much easier to, to get and much less expensive. Mm. Um, and so it's very useful. But really, because the human eyes, they... Um, the cells are, are more delicate, they're more difficult to culture. So it was great to start off, but we've still had to do a lot of work with the human cells. Yes, yeah, you ever see a bovine eye? Uh, they, they're they, huge. they they're have, huge. they have pretty eyes. I know that much. They're big they, eyes. They have, uh, don't cows have eyelashes? They're, they're like big, beautiful I eyelashes. I don't know. They don't, I don't think they come with the specimen, <laughs> the eyelash. No. <laughs> Occasionally they fall in. Oh, you see them in the culture dish. They wave. What's like, up? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> that's funny. So, um, so we can, besides culturing them from actual patients, uh, from human embryonic stem cells, are, how are the, I, I remember like some of the earlier cultures, um, that, you know, uh, we see sort of these pigmented, uh, cells in the dish and it was always assumed that was rpe some rpe contaminant because you know we're trying to make this type of neuron and then we see this pigmented cell and it was always assumed they were rpe um so what's the state of making rpe from human embryonic stem cells because when we talk to stem cell scientists besides all the blood diseases rp mac degen uh everybody's excited about this as like the first treatment that will be you know the first pay dirt from human embryonic stem cells so uh what's the state of making rpe from human es cells 
Well, you're, you're right. I think it was several years ago. I mean, back in like 2003, 2004, people began seeing those pigmented patches. And it turns out that if you let human ES cells grow and they spontaneously differentiate and make the RPE, now, that is inefficient and it takes a long time. And I think we've improved that process now. Uh, researchers like Yal Bannon uh, and uh, Benjamin Rubinoff in Israel uh, have helped develop better, more efficient methods, and we've adapted those, and we do that here as well. Uh, so now you can take the retinal pigment epithelial patches and sort of manually cut them out and put them in a new dish and get really pure populations of retinal pigment epithelium from those embryonic stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells. Um, and, and you're right, there's a lot of excitement about using those as well in the same type of application that we're, we've been talking about for the adult stem cells that we've been working on here. People are using these pluripotent sources to make the RPE. And in fact, there's a, an ongoing a clinical trial in the UK using human embryonic stem cell-derived RPE. Um, and there's also a clinical trial here that's run by a company called ACT that's based in Massachusetts. Advanced so, Cell Technologies? Yes, mm. exactly. So, um, you know, I think... Everyone's recognized that as a first step for CNS replacement, for central nervous system replacement, going into the eye is really more accessible than going into the spinal cord or, or the brain. So it's a great first uh, uh, place to go for. And and furthermore... So the, the, the brain, the, the eye doesn't reject it as much, right? Like the immune system is sort of, it's more privileged, I guess. Uh, so... Well, I think that's one. I think people recognize that the RPE is a simpler cell to replace than, say, a retinal ganglion cell. It has a long process or, mm -hmm. you know, it's just less complicated. But uh, there's a debate about the immune rejection issue. The eye is an immune privilege site mm -hmm. normally, but part of that uh, immune privilege comes from the healthy retinal pigment epithelium. So that epithelial layer has to be really healthy and intact and if it breaks down then actually you're beginning to break down the the blood retina barrier so whether or not there has an immune it has an immune privilege when it's so right now then we don't know what the you know how immune privileged the site will be when you have a diseased eye it may not be as immune privileged as, as you know, as you hope for. Mm -hmm. And so I think, uh, you know, people who are doing these transplantations in clinical trials are using immunosuppressant as well to help counteract that. And one other, one last question I have is, uh, what are the signals that you have to give the, you know, uh, do you have to go through an, uh, neural induction stage and then add some went or what are they like? Uh, what, what kind of, what do RPEs like in terms of uh, signaling and where are the markers? Are people able to sort them out based on their pigment? Uh, how do you purify them? Uh, I guess that those are my two big questions. 
Yes, so like with many uh, situations, people went to the literature uh, of understanding how the retinal pigment epithelial forms in the mouse, and they've replicated that in the human embryonic stem cells, for example, to make better RPE, make it more efficiently. So one of the important factors to add is actually Activin. um, And that's added later on, and it helps stimulate the production of the cells. Um, So uh, then you can get, you know, a a pretty nice uh, layer uh, from that. But we don't yet have surface markers that... Are, allow us to pull the cells out. We're really working on that. What we do right now is just manually pick those pigmented colonies mm-hmm. and then use those, pick those cells and manually put them in another dish to enrich for them. It, it's not as great as having a good surface marker. Can the fax machine though, like based off of the granularity or whatever, the side scatter, um, purify the, the cells based on that, that the pigment? Or is that just not technically feasible? Oh, we've done some of that actually, and it, you know you can enrich that way. It's it's just not as efficient yet as doing it the other way. I think okay. perhaps if we worked harder at it, we could get it what, to work. What I should I say when I say I, fax machine, I don't mean like an old school eighties or nineties like fax simile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, uh, fluorescent activated cell sorting. We're talking about think, sorting, purifying. I think cells. one of the advantages with with the RPE is that um, it it has a very distinct cell morphology. You know, mm-hmm. when you when we when we make neurons, a lot of neurons look very similar, but the more the morphology of the RPE is really beautiful. And I think in the dish, it's kind of easy easier to recognize therefore you probably can go in and pick it out and have a better chance of growing up a, a more pure um pop population so on the, for the last little bit joseph what i want to do is i want to ha- get sally's perspective on their uh their their now kind of forward progress towards a clinical trial with their uh, rpe cells um so recently sally the the group uh, the institute was awarded a a consortium grant by the New York State Stem Cell um, uh, NYSTEM, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that that grant is to take this RPE discovery and kind of push it down the road and get it towards the beginning stage of a of a clinical trial in an IND. So, if you wouldn't mind just describing to our audience kind of what what your goal is there and kind of where you'd like to take the RPE for a possible therapeutic uh, for macular degeneration. Yeah. Oh, so we, having discovered this retinal pigment epithelial stem cell, and we figured out ways to culture that cell so it looks like authentic cobblestone retinal pigment epithelium, and then we figured out how to make it in very large quantities. This is from human adult eyes? Yeah, from human adult eyes. So Mm. with that in hand, then, we realized that we had the opportunity to use this cell and be able to use it in transplant for patients with age-related macular degeneration. So we began putting together the preclinical studies that we need in order to apply to the FDA for this uh, IND application, this investigational new drug application. And um, this is really an expensive process. This process of translating from the, the bench to that um, first 
starting clinical trial is really expensive. And we were really fortunate to get a New York State NYSTEM consortium grant to do it. So there's a number of institutes involved. Uh, the University of Rochester are going to help us make a clinical grade line. Um, there's Fordham University, Sylvia Finneman there. She's helping us understand the phagocytic properties of the cells. Uh, we have uh, collaborators here at the uh, University at Albany who are helping work on a new substrate for growing the cells and to better inject the cells in vivo. And we're also um, working with one of the pioneers in vision testing because you have to figure out after you do these studies and you do them in animal models, you have to figure out if your mouse or rat is seeing better. And you can, you know, that's that's kind of difficult and specialized. And so Glenn Prisky down at the Burke Institute in White Plains is helping us with that. So uh, we're all working incredibly hard to put this preclinical package together. And we will be able, we hope, to um, get that finished. Uh, we have about three years, three and a half years remaining on our grant to, to do that. And just so this, be- just to be clear for everyone, is a cell replacement strategy. In other words, you're going to take the RPE cells and then put them back into the eye of a patient and or animal uh, model. To what replace is uh, what would be bad cells, if you will, with the new cells, right? To, to that question, what is the animal model? How do you uh, produce this in the animal? Is it a genetic or you just add a toxin or physically remove the RP? How, how does that work with the animal models? So that is such a, a great question, and it's something I think everybody struggles with when they're in this preclinical phase because you want to know that you're using the best model for your disease. And in this particular application, a lot of people use the Royal College of Surgeon Rat in which the retinal pigment epithelium degenerates. And it degenerates soon after birth. So if you can go in and put in new cells to replace those cells that are lost in the RCS rat, then hopefully you can prevent the retinal degeneration that happens so this royal rat that's what we're doing this this royal rat i guess has a has a uh have they described what causes it is a genetic uh just some sort of abnormality in this rat or it's just something that spontaneously occurred in this particular mouse uh rat uh it is it, it is a, a spontaneous mutation in a gene called MRTK okay. that is important for phagocytosis. And that is where the retinal pigment epithelium, one of its really important jobs is that it helps replenish the outer segments of the light-sensitive photoreceptors. So the photoreceptors have this long projection that the RPE cell actually like nibbles away at to renew it. Wow. Um, it, it it's phagocytosis, meaning it sort of chews away at it, and then it replenishes it, makes it new, and then it pushes it back into the photoreceptors. It's really neat cycle. Wow. And if the RPE can't do that, then the overlying photoreceptors die off and... <laughs> These the are the, the dice. these are the cones and the rods that everybody may remember from yeah. 
Okay, awesome. From yeah. I don't know biology. I always <laughs> got it confused which ones did color the. I always got that confused. Yeah, the reds and the what yeah. CC counts. Well, how come nobody told me that back in the day? I was always struggling back in the day. What I just is? Just figured it out now. What cones, is it? Cones, color, rods, not color. Okay, all right, that makes sense. CC cones. I just yeah, and rods are the reds or I don't know. I just. It's so long ago, and the eye is so far removed from what I've been doing over the last 10 years that uh, I'm sort of blind to this. I just know that RPE is... <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, well, thanks for summing so all that up. Uh, one, sorry, Yos. One thing I just wanted before we end, I think, is really important, because we talk a lot about iPS cells on this show, and we talk a lot about embryonic stem cells. And I, I want to get across... Um, the fact that this cell, Sally, that your group is using is not derived from a pluripotent cell. And so I want you just real briefly to describe what the advantages are of your cell that you're going to be putting into patients compared to the cells that um, we talked about with ACT and these others because, you know, there are, like, just like drugs, you know, there are a lot of different drugs possibly that are going to, you know, fix, you know, re lower cholesterol, and they do different things. So tell us a little bit about what some of the advantages of our, 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 of your RPE cell that you guys have identified. Well, you know, we've, we've begun side-by-side testing of the cells derived from, say, human embryonic stem cells and the ones that we get, and it's preliminary, but it looks as if there are differences And we think that the cell that we're working with may be differentiated a bit more fully than the human embryonic stem cell derived. Sorry, when you say differentiated, you mean a little bit more mature than that? Yeah, exactly. So it's a little bit more mature. And, you know, whether that will be really significant, we don't know. I mean, it's certainly encouraging. Um, But the cell also has other advantages because the fact is that it can be found right in the eye. And so while, you know, right now we're working on transplanting with this cell, taking it out, growing it up, and then putting it back into patients. But what if we didn't have to do that? What if we could figure out ways to activate it right there in the eye? Mm. And, and you know, that's sort of the next frontier, I think, of what we're going to be doing is yeah. to try to understand how to get this cell to wound heal right in the eye to fix the loss of those cells right in the eye. Yeah, I was going to say, are people doing drug screens in vitro with these uh, cells? But it seems like it may be important instead of trying to you know, produce a toxin to make them degenerate and then rescue them with a drug screen, maybe it's more important to just figure out how to stimulate the stem cell growth in vitro, what what drugs can activate these cells to divide or, um, I don't know. Uh, is that more important than, or is there an established drug screen model in vitro for these cells? Yeah, that's exactly what we're working on. So I'm working with Jeff Stern here who recently he actually won an award it's really uh, a great award from the national eye institute they uh it was called the audacious goal award and he he put in uh an idea for doing exactly what you're talking about figuring out how to activate the the cell and and won that i think they gave 10 awards and that was really you know great to see uh how how this 
this idea based on the cell that, that we've discovered can be developed. Awesome. So on that note, I think uh, we should wrap it up because uh, it's been a good half an hour of uh, RPE discussion. And uh, maybe you can uh, join us for our our patented uh, stem cell rant. Oh, yeah, we're going to do a little bit of a rant. Um, I should say, Yos, before we rant, if you want to hear uh, or get some more information on uh, Sally's work and uh, the uh, Sally's um, uh, the Institute, the Neural Stem Cell Institute, you can go to www.neuralsci.org, and they're on Twitter, at Neural Stem Cells. So uh, you can go on there and read a little bit more information. So we'll just quickly, we'll thank you again, but thank you very much. Uh, and so let's do a little bit of a rant, my man. What are you feeling uh, extra crispy about? The- <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this week I think we have to do a, a very stem cell specific uh, rant. And this would be the, the eternal issue of bad KSR, quote unquote. Um, so we should first I define. Got, I got the chills when you said bad <laughs> KSR. It's like, a, so like we a, should, it's like a tingling sensation. We, we should define what KSR is. It is uh, knockout serum replacement media. And this is sort of a supplement that uh, all stem cell scientists are familiar with. It's something that we add to our culture uh, media. And it's sort of this, how would you describe it? No one really knows what it is because it's proprietary. And I don't even know how they, uh, maybe we could get. It's kind of a scary substance. You know, (laughs) it's like thick. It's got to be thawed overnight. It's weird. So if, uh, if we it contains the majority of it is BSA, um, which is uh, bovine serum, uh, bovine albumin. serum albumin, which is the majority of it. And there's a bunch of other stuff in there. And so right there is your problem, right? You're sourcing it from a cow. And so which means you get a bad cow with some bad eyelashes like we talked about. <laughs> and uh, you can end up with, with a bad reagent. And that causes incredible problems and nightmares in the lab. And Yes, if you know, we if we were pastry chefs, this would be like butter for us. If we, I mean, this is like the main ingredient that we need um, to do our cultures to keep our stem cells stemmy, or uh, to you know keep our uh, the beginning phases of a differentiation going. So uh, typically, you hear, "Oh, my differentiation didn't work because of." bad KSR, quote-unquote, and um, or my stem cells don't look good. It, perhaps it's the KSR that's bad. And um, it seems like, as scientists, we haven't been able to uh, either... First of all, it, it, what is bad KSR? And um, that depends. Some people say, oh, it, it definitely affects it, or, you know, more people be like, oh, I don't believe you. That's, that's just, you, you know, it could be something else. Prove it to me. You know, so it... It's sort of like it could be the KSR or it couldn't. And <laughs> I just find it uh, – can we get a better media, something more defined? I guess now with uh, this ground state uh, paper, we, we can maybe make a media that doesn't involve KSR perhaps. That's well, just I, all I defined you, I factors. I'll tell you this. There have, been some, there have been some attempts in making medias without KSR. I think you know E8 and these other kind of medias have come out. And they're very bare in their components, and that's the point, to try to make it a little bit more stable. But unfortunately, the performance um, in in my hands and a bunch of other respected stem cell scientists I know is just not up to par because KSR is rich and supportive, right? So it's like serum. So we do need one. I will tell you that 
Uh, I know a company that I am involved with, STEM Culture. We are in the process of making a KSR-less media because it has driven us to the point of frustration. But I think, Sally, this speaks to reagents in general, right, that the quality control is an issue. And we learned this with antibodies, Yosef. We've learned it with just gen- things just sometimes and randomly will not work, and it can cause a spiral in your lab. Right? Uh, it's you, gotten in to your the- career, Sal, you must have come across this all the time, and like these things pop up, and it's just frustrating. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember being, the, being almost out for well, months and months with variability in B27. That's oh. one of the components we use all the time to grow neural stem cells, and sometimes it worked really well. And other times it was actually toxic and we pinned it down. We knew it was that. Now, interestingly, a big component of that B27 is BSA. So it's maybe the eyelash problem. <laughs> um, we, we really need to figure this out. And, you know, doing this whole preclinical thing now and really understanding what it takes, a lot of what we do is risk mitigation, which is a term that I've become all too familiar with. And, you know, you think about how something like this can disturb an experiment that's been going on for weeks upon weeks and that you've invested so much time and money and effort in and then have it blow because of a component like this. You know, what type of risk mitigation do we need to do to figure it out? And, uh, it's got, know. yeah, it's the variability is amazing. It's gotten to the point where some people start hoarding the, the good KSR lot or the good lot of this. And it, it almost becomes like, oh, this lot's good for neural crest and this lot's good for, you know, it's, it, it, and people start hoarding the good KSR versus the bad KSR and it's hard to test and, it's just a mess. I, I feel like um, the, the, the bad KSR deserves its own rant. <laughs> but but you, know, you know what the problem is, man? It's like a drug, though. You know what? I'm going to sit here and tell you all day long that the KSR is terrible. Do you know what I'm going to do next week? I'm ordering KSR. Just because it, you know, it's, it is. You just can't, you can't get off it. And so I think that we need to just come up with some better alternatives um, because it is scary in the, in the world of clinical trial where you're going to be generating cells with these reagents. You know, how do you know that they're going to at one day just not work? So. Can you can you imagine another field like a pastry chef being like, oh, we've got bad butter, or like uh, I've got the good butter in the freezer that we got to save for that great pastry that we're gonna make? I, it's just it, it a amazes. world of no butter would be a bad world. So <laughs> yeah, so know, I don't I don't know, but yeah, it's it's I, I hear you, man. It's just well deserving of a rant, but the solution. Um, is just not there yet, unfortunately. It's gay. I hope it gets there. I hope we can one day tell you that we have a new media that's KSR less and reliable. So, uh, well, well, good, good rant for the day. <laughs> I hope now when I go back into my lab, I don't hear those words. I have a KSR problem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not things you want to hear. So let's close it, uh, Let's close it down. Thanks. Thank you, Sally, so and much for joining us. Sally, Pleasure. can you just give a shout out again to where you are? Because you've mentioned several times here. So the Neural Stem Cell Institute is in Rensselaer, New York. It's in beautiful upstate New York, which is at a balmy uh, minus four today. <laughs> and uh, we're looking out on a gorgeous landscape with lots of snow and ice. Uh, we love it up here. Yeah, I've, I've been there. It's a beautiful campus uh, right next to Regeneron and uh, some exciting stuff going there on over there. So I uh, hope to see you guys soon. Yeah, Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. All right, Yos, take us out, man. I'll talk to you. All right, take care, bro.